and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor, and in this episode, we're talking about habitats. Uh, Not specific habitats, but more about the idea of habitats, and I'll be giving you some suggestions for how you might deepen your students' understanding of the topic. So it's not quite a primer on habitats, it's more of a maybe a tune-up or a clarification about some of the key concepts in this topic. So, let's begin with what is a habitat? A common definition that a lot of us will use is that a habitat is an animal's home. Now, this is a good starting point, but using this definition that a habitat is an animal's home has a few potential uh, misconceptions within it. First off, Plants also live in specific places, and that means that they also have habitats. So we should probably change the word animal to something a bit more general, like living thing or organism. Next, using the word home can be a bit confusing because it might refer to the structure where an animal lives. So a person's home, for instance, might refer to something like a house or an apartment. The equivalent for a bird might be a nest, or a bear's home is a den, and a badger's home is a set. But none of these are actually what educators usually mean when we are teaching about habitats. When we talk about habitats, we're usually referring to something more like a forest or a field, a desert, a coral reef. And the difference here is that what we're usually talking about is something on a bit of a larger scale than an individual animal's home. So it's on the scale where more than one type of living thing can can live there. A better definition to use might be something along the lines of a habitat is where an organism makes its home. So a bird makes its nest, which would be its home, in a tree, which would be a microhabitat, or in a forest, which is a, a habitat. Another definition might be the area where an organism lives. And again, this and again this slightly different definition gives a sense that we're talking about uh, something a bit larger scale. It's, It's the area where an organism lives, the area where it makes its home. So again, when we're talking about a definition for habitats, make sure that it's clear that the idea encompasses all living things will have a habitat, and that what we're talking about is an area that's a little bit bigger, so it includes more than one type of living thing will kind of share that habitat. Next question, what makes a specific habitat? Here we're usually talking about qualities like temperature, rainfall, what animals live there, what plants live there. And it's tempting to teach about habitats through specific examples. So often when we're teaching this topic, uh, students might learn about deserts and learn that they're hot and dry, they're sandy, there's cactuses, there's camels. Uh, Or we might talk about forests, which are cooler, wetter, there's lots of trees there. And when we're talking about environmental education, often rainforests are very popular as well. And here we're talking about a very hot and wet environment with lots of trees, lots of animals, and that's a rainforest. These examples and simplifications are useful starting points, but if we don't go beyond them, we actually can miss out on some of the really amazing things that happen in these habitats. So deserts, for instance, if students just get the idea that they're hot, Uh, This misses out the fact that a lot of deserts can be actually very cold at night. They're usually dry, as in most of the year they're dry, but they can get periods of intense rainfall, and this can trigger huge changes and explosions uh, of life and activity in that area. 
So how should we look at what makes a specific habitat? Well, again, it's about being a bit more broader in scope. So instead of talking about temperature and rainfall, we want to talk about climate patterns. We want to talk about the landscape, and we want to talk about the community of organisms that live in that area. So of course, climate is weather patterns over long periods, and so it will capture daily and seasonal variations, which can be really important in how a specific habitat works. Going back to the desert example, learning about cycles of hot and cool, wet and dry, and how these have a huge impact on the animals and plants that make deserts their homes. Often the topic of habitats will include things like adaptations to the qualities of that habitat. And of course, if these animals live there year round, they have to deal with these seasonal and daily variations. So they need to be adapted not only to hot days, but also very cold nights. They need to be adapted to the usual very dry conditions, but they also need to be able to take advantage of those short wet spells. So all of this affects how we teach and learn about adaptations as well. So this brings us to thinking about the community of organisms that live there. Uh, living things, particularly plants, have a really significant impact on the character of a habitat. Plants in particular are important because animals, which aren't getting what they need from an area, they can move away. Plants are a bit more rooted in place, and so they can really strongly shape the character of that habitat. So as an example, we can think about forests. Forests are often very shaped by the dominant tree species in an area. Birch forests are very different from oak forests, which are very different from pine forests, for instance. Um, these different forests will have very different light levels because the different tree species will have um, thicker or lighter canopies. So this really affects the kinds of plants which can grow at ground level. Now, looking at the reasons why a plant community might be dominant in an area is a good extension for this topic because we start to then think about the abiotic or non-living elements in an area. So again, this is things like climate patterns, but also characteristics like soil conditions and topography, which is how flat or steep an area is, and even what direction a slope faces can have a big impact. Forests are, again, a really good example of this. Birch forests are common in areas with sandier soils, so water tends to drain through a bit more quickly. Wet forests in low-lying areas might be more populated by trees like alders and willows, which are well adapted to really soggy soil. And here in the northern hemisphere, south-facing slopes, they tend to get more sunlight, and that means that in spring they warm up more quickly and they stay green longer in autumn. So, what's important about a habitat? Usually when we're thinking about this question with kids, the answer is that it's the place where these animals live. It's where animals get their food, their water, their shelter, and their space. And all of this is true, but if we start there and then move to a bit more of a zoomed out view, then there are even more important reasons to understand habitats and how they work. When we look at a bigger landscape scale, we can see that habitats are, of course, connected to each other and of course, the boundary between one type of habitat and another is not usually a very straight line. They blend from one to the next. And this means that these habitats are all interacting. They're having effects on one another. So a very simple example to think about is rain falling on a hillside. When this happens, the rain can run down over the surface and into rivers. And this carries bits of plants and soil with it. This brings nutrients to the river to feed plants, 
but it can also wash in human-made chemicals like pesticides. If we were to look at a wooded hill with lots of trees on it, uh, or if there's a bit of woodland between a hill and the river, what you find is that those tree roots kind of make channels for rainwater to run down into the soil, and this reduces the amount of water that runs over the surface and into the rivers. This has the effect of reducing the risk of flash floods or rivers bursting their banks. Similarly, marshes or reed beds on the sides of rivers act as big filters. All of that plant and roots, they end up trapping mud and soil that's being washed off, off the land. The bacteria that live in and around these plants and in and around the roots, um, they can break down and clear out chemical fertilizers that humans might apply to their fields. So these are small-scale connections that are pretty easy to, to see. But we can also zoom out even further and look at much more difficult-to-spot connections. So, for instance, winds blowing over the Sahara Desert picks up dust and carries it around the world. And this dust acts as fertilizer for algae in the oceans. And that dust can even land as far away as the Amazon, where it acts again as a fertilizer for the rainforest. Similarly, salmon runs when salmon return from the ocean back up to stream to lay their eggs. That brings a huge amount of nutrients from the ocean back into the continents. And this can be a really important source of fertilizer for the forests and food for the animals that live there. So what does this mean for teaching about habitats? Well, here in the UK, the curriculum puts a lot of weight on naming and memorizing things. But... These facts are arguably not the most valuable things that exploring this topic um, can teach. These are facts which can be read and learned really without too much guidance from a teacher. Kids are really good at memorizing loads of facts about their areas of interest. So I'm sure a lot of us have worked with kids who have a particular interest, like in dinosaurs, and they've memorized lists of all these names of dinosaurs. Um, you know, kids can tell you the names of characters and all their different powers. They'll be able to tell you the names of athletes on sports teams and give you some of their stats. If they're interested in it, they will seek out these facts and they can memorize these facts on their own. For me, the key parts of the topic are the concepts that habitats provide for the needs of living things, the idea that habitats are interrelated, that living things are interdependent, and that habitats will change over time and this will have impacts on the living things within them. And the themes running through these four points uh, is that it's, the topic is really about understanding the needs of living things and understanding relationships. That's relationships between living things and between living things and the non-living parts of the environment, the abiotic parts of the environment. The first point is in a lot of ways really about empathy. It's about understanding the needs of others and being able to see how they reflect our own needs. And this is an incredibly important skill for working well with others and making decisions in life which will have an impact beyond ourselves. The second point is about seeing how actions and choices have consequences. It's often really difficult to see all the impacts of a choice or action or an event because we might not even be aware of all the relevant places to look for these impacts. And so it's here where the guidance and experience of a teacher really comes in. We can use our experience, our accumulated knowledge, to point out places where students might look to find these connections. Then they can explore those places and get a feel for how those connections and interrelationships work. 
And this is another really important skill because being able to see connections and relationships and how parts of a system work together is incredibly important because it helps you to make considered decisions. It's also important in working to solve big problems where there might be many different stakeholders, many different moving parts. In those situations, you need to be able to see the needs and wants of other people and look at how those affect others. So what might all of this look like in a lesson or in a classroom? Well, part of the topic might be really digging deep and looking at a particular microhabitat. If we're talking about a, a pond, we might start by looking at the bottom of a pond. Or if we're learning about forests, we might learn about the microhabitat of a rotting log. We can explore the details of the needs of living things there and how they depend on the very specific qualities of that microhabitat. You might start zooming out and then taking a wider view. So we might think about building up food chains, but then connecting those food chains together into food webs. Rather than having the whole class learn about one habitat at a time, students might explore different habitats and then work together to look for possible connections between the habitats that they've focused on. So all of this is about not focusing too much on specific examples, trying to look at the topic from different perspectives and at different scales, and all of this will help to build up a deeper understanding of the topic. At the same time, we want to see if we can pull out patterns of questions or general principles that students can then apply in other contexts. So in history, for example, if we're learning about a particular historical period, we might want to look at the climate conditions. Was there something going on in the environment that might have had an impact on historical events? And it's often productive to also look at events happening elsewhere in the world and look at how they're all connected. What does this mean for those of us who work in outdoor education settings? Well, here it's important to remember what makes our setting different from a classroom setting, and, and that's the fact that we're outdoors, we're in a natural environment, we're in an actual habitat. And so some time for free exploration of the habitat can be really valuable because it gives students a sense of the complexity of the habitat, you know, and then we might use our experience, again, to direct students for different ways in which they might explore the habitat, to give them that grounded physical experience so that they can appreciate the complexity of a habitat and really flesh out the abstracted and simplified understanding of a habitat that we get in a classroom setting. Um, often we have the opportunity to interact with living things, with the animals and the plants, and that's a chance to um, perhaps focus in on building up empathy. So rather than spending too much time learning about facts, um, devoting some time to just gaining an appreciation for the character of this living thing. So maybe not the specifics of whatever its needs and whatever its wants, but to appreciate the character of it, allowing time for students to see that, oh, these are quite charming animals, looking at how they move and how the living things navigate their space, because these are things that are, are much more difficult to get out from a classroom setting. So a good thing to focus on uh, is often the behaviors rather than just the physical characteristics, because you can see the physical characteristics of an animal from a, a picture in, or an illustration. It's much more difficult to look at the behavior of a living thing in the classroom because you just don't have it there in front of you. 
So I hope this episode has helped you to see this topic from another perspective. As always, full notes on the ideas shared in this episode can be found on our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. As always, if you have any questions or comments, or if there's any other topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email. The address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcasts. Thanks for listening. 